Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, hey, John, thanks for joining us today. Of course. It's, to it's great to talk with you on on this sunny but snowy day here in um, or snow covered day here in the Midwest. Um, I think the best place to start would be to have you introduce yourself and your farm and food enterprise. Sure, Tara. Um, my name is John Webking. Um, we uh, I farm with my wife Hallie and our mentor slash boss slash partner Paul Bickford in Ridgeway, Wisconsin. Our farm is about eight or nine hundred acres of organic grain production and then grass-fed beef on rotational pasture on top of that. And we have, since Hallie and I were hired on the farm, been steering the farm more toward a focus on value-added small grains and flour milling and direct-to-consumer flour and grain sales. Right. So there's so many unique things about what you do that I want to um, I want to share with people. So we'll start with um, 900 acres, eight 900 acres in in Wisconsin. That's a lot for organic anything. I, it, does that make you one of the biggest um, organic farms in our state in terms of acreage? You, you know, probably not. I mean, we're uh, you'd be surprised how many organic farms there are in the thousand to 2000 acre okay. um, range there probably, I don't know if there's 25 of us that are in, you know, our size and larger, that's probably, probably the group. Mm-hmm. But um, if you go into Iowa and Illinois, they, they get considerably larger than that even right. Mul- multiple thousands of acres. But I've always felt that it's um, where we farm in the driftless that I'm about it where I would at the ceiling of where I would ever want to be for, for growing crops ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really unique landscape and, and the larger you get, the harder it is to do a, a really good job on all those acres and be a steward as well as a farmer. Right. Right. So for those of you around the country who don't know the driftless, what is the driftless area? What is it like? The driftless is in, uh, uh, the term comes from the, the lack of glacial drift. So the last ice age that came through and flattened most of the Midwest spared sort of an appendage of land around the Mississippi River Basin that's roughly southwest Wisconsin, southeast Minnesota, and northeast Iowa. And so we have, um, you know, remnant ecosystems that are 10,000 years old and limestone bluffs and trout streams. And and so it, it looks much more like you know, Vermont or New Hampshire than it does central Iowa. It's a very unique place. And, and because of that, the farms have stayed small and, and family farms have been able to hang on longer. And it's also, I think, a big reason why Organic Valley started here because there was a critical mass of um, smaller organic farmers that, uh, that had dairies that, that were able to come together and start that. I don't think that Organic Valley would have taken off if it weren't for the driftless in some ways. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. And so you, you met Paul Bickford. How did you meet Paul? 
Uh, we, um, like actually a, a fair number of jobs and, and well, not just a, a few times this has happened to me where it was, uh, through Craigslist. So Paul had had a ad on Craigslist for, he said over a year, um, that, and we've saved it. It, it was very articulate and, you know, I'm a farmer in my early sixties and I don't have anyone to, you know, to take over the farm when I retire and I have all of this knowledge and expertise and I don't want to take it, you know, take it to the grave with me. I mean, that was literally what the Craigslist ad said. Hmm. And so he was looking for a young person or a couple who wanted to, he envisioned someone with a little bit of equity, which we didn't have. Um, but we had the sweat equity and the wherewithal and, um, you know, and we're committed. So, he hired us and we moved. We were living in Lancaster, which is about an hour to the west of here, where my sort of ancestral family farm is, was, um, and uh, to, to back up uh, one level further, uh, my wife and I met cooking in New York City restaurant kitchens. We, we both cooked at a restaurant called Prune in the East Village, which is Gabrielle Hamilton's um, restaurant. And, uh, we got together after we had both quit working there and within a number of months, uh, I let it slip that I had this idea to come back to Wisconsin and try to work my family's farm, which was, you know, partially in CRP and somewhat fallow or, uh, I wouldn't say mismanaged, but, but not managed in an active and profitable farming way. And so we moved to Lancaster and tried for around 18 months to try to work the family politics of making that happen. And it became very clear to us very quickly that if we wanted to wait for the family farm, we could be waiting 10, 15, 20 years um, working off farm jobs and, and you know making hay and moving cattle there on the weekends and in the evenings, but not really be in a position where that was going to be our livelihood. So at the time, it was a really difficult decision, but we decided that it was more important to be farming generally um, and to try to find farming work that would allow us to have all of our income come from farming. Um, that was our goal very early on. Hmm. And we just got very lucky uh, finding someone like Paul who was, who was open and interested and, and, and willing to work with us, even though we were pretty green um, certainly compared to where he, he was. So that you grew up, did you grow up on the farm raising cattle? Yeah, partly. No one ever that the, it's, it's a long story, but no one lived on that farm for a very long time. My, mm -hmm. my grandparents moved to town. And so there was a herd of give or take 50, uh, you know, maybe a 25 cow calf breeding mm -hmm. herd. And we would raise yearlings and on semi-rotational, but really just continuous grazing and then make hay on grass hay ground. And so I grew up conversing in skid steers and pull-type hay binds and old balers and wheel and rakes and cattle. stuff. But that's about it. And cattle. Yeah. So I, when I, my first day with Paul was, you know, a 225 horsepower, um, big new case tractor with a 12 row cultivator and um, you know, I, I spent the first couple of weeks killing a lot of soybeans, uh, <laughs> while he, did, while he dealt with a lot of other things. It was very much a trial by fire. I was really out of my depth, but, um, 
he was too busy to notice <laughs> probably <laughs> how much I was screwing up in the early days. And I learned uh, quite a bit in a hurry. So Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think, you know, for, for people who are like, how could you possibly, you know, take over a 900 acre farm? Like you have to start with some some place other than, gee, I want to be a farmer, right? So, yeah, I mean, you may not have known how to farm at that scale, but you at least had grown up around livestock and on a farm. And then you went and you worked in the kitchens. Were you, were either of you bakers or were you? I worked cooks? at a, cu- a couple of bakeries in New York City for a time. Okay. Um, it was the first one was a bakery called Bien Cui in Brooklyn, and I was the off-night overnight baker so I worked Mm. from 8 p.m. to 6 in the morning two to three nights a week which is a real um, emotional and like physical challenge because I couldn't find another job that was overnight so I had this I couldn't actually make it a any part of my routine so that didn't last more than a few months because I just physically couldn't handle um, a part-time job that had such crazy hours but I learned a lot I mean and I, I worked at another small bakery that was in a in a fine dining restaurant in Manhattan. And then uh, rest, restaurant cooking in New York is funny. Some people s- manage to land somewhere and stay for a number of years. But I, I found it was more common that you might stay at a restaurant for a year or two and then, you know, move through a few different restaurants and get a bunch of different experiences. And mm-hmm. we were both at that point in our careers where we either had to take the next step up and try to be like, you know, running restaurants and raising money and open, both of us realized that we were much more interested in food than, than restaurants per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just became clear to us that we had sort of hit our ceiling in the, in the restaurant industry, at least in New York. Yeah. Um, so I, I, asked, I asked that question because, um, you know, you've gone on to direct market grains, right? And so, knowing something about what restaurants want, what bakers want, what professionals want. I bet that helps you a lot to figure out what you're doing now. Yeah, and in some ways it's, and I don't know if Hallie and I could have articulated this from the very beginning, but it became pretty clear right away that it was a good way for us to leverage that skill set to help uh, not just make our farm more profitable, but to help other farms that we buy grain from, mm-hmm. because not every farmer is going to even be interested, let alone good at um, going into the back door of a restaurant kitchen and and talking to a chef or someone running a bakery and understand what they need in a wholesale relationship and um, what their expectations are and how not to be a pain in the neck and uh, overly complicate things. So in some ways, it's that's sort of what our business has become is finding ways to leverage that skill set to to help build more markets for other other organic farmers in the, in the region. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing you did was buy a small property, right? That had a house on it. Is that right? That yeah. and cattle. Yeah, right? I mean, there, there were a number of things that sort of happened like dominoes over the first. And we're about six years in now. Right. Six or seven years in. The very first thing was buying cattle. We got a FSA micro loan for beginning farmers. There's a $50,000 
limit where if you're at 50,000 or less, it's a really short form expedited underwriting process. And because of the relationship with the farm, we could defer some of our hay costs and things like that. What, what, we, what most people will do if they're trying to buy cattle on a loan like that, they want you to repay it in a pretty short period of time. So usually you'll buy stockers, you know, and, mm-hmm. and or feeder cattle and, feeder cattle, and flip yeah. them, raise them, flip them, hopefully make profit, pay your loan back and have a little bit more and then be able to build your business from there. But we knew we wanted to do cow-calf, so we did a seven-year loan for 22 breeding heifers and a, and a yearling bull mm-hmm. and just started from there. The challenge was making those first two years of payments before we had um, calves that grew up to market weight. So right. it was a scramble at the beginning, but now that we're a number of years into those payments, it certainly um, allowed us to build a, a, a sizable herd relatively quickly. So that was huge. And then we mm-hmm. did um, we did what's called, not to get too in the weeds with uh, FSA finance, but we did what's called, I believe, a 545-50 loan. Mm-hmm. So we were able to put 5% down and uh, 45% was financed with FSA at a really low interest rate. And then the other 50% is a land contract with the farm. Um, and with that, we bought um, 80 acres, which contains our homestead, the house we actually live on, mm-hmm. live in. Is that um, where the cattle are? As and that's well? where the, the home base for the cattle is too. Yeah. I yeah. mean, this, the pasture system kind of snakes around uh, our west farm um, mm-hmm. on the uh, sort of downslope hillsides. We have mm-hmm. a really inefficient serpentine pasture system where we crop the ridge tops and graze the steeper hillsides, which means there's a ton of miles of um, water line and electric fencing and chainsaw work and tree clearing compared to the actual acres of grass. Mm-hmm. Um, but it allows us to manage the land. It allows the cattle really to manage the land that isn't fit for annual crops and allows us to focus the annual crops on the less sloped ground on the ridge tops. Mm-hmm. How many cattle do you have right now? Like 50 maybe? Well, 35 breeding cows. Okay. Um, so we're sort of at the top upper limit of where we're going to have to start looking at multiple bulls. Um, mm-hmm. And we've just grown that through bringing in, repla- you know, keeping replacement heifers. Sure. Again, the, the loan payments weren't so substantial that we would have to be constantly selling all of our heavies. We could mm-hmm. sort of aggressively keep replacement heifers, uh, mm-hmm. which has been really helpful for growing the herd. But the the goal is to have the herd up to a size where there's kind of an equilibrium between the amount of forages we have to grow, alfalfa and clover hay and things like that, just for the fertility piece of our organic grain rotation. Mm-hmm. Right now, we have to produce a lot more hay than we have mouths to feed, and then we have to sell a lot of uh, organic dairy hay right. off the farm, which is a lot of wear and tear on trucks and trailers in the winter and a lot of hours and a lot of nutrient export off the farm, which right. um, a lot of a lot of carbon leaving the farm, which I'm trying to get away from. So the trick is over time, we have plenty more steep hillsides to graze. Uh, I just have to, you know, uh, grow the herd and build more fence and water line and, and make it work. So we have this, we're lucky to have the space to grow the herd sustainably. We just have to get the herd to that place. And I think it's probably somewhere in the 50 cow range, um, at least to start. Uh, 
to get to a place where where that number will kind of um, get close to the amount of hay we make. So, yeah. Right, right. Okay. And one of the interesting things from a financial point of view is that um, cattle breeding livestock like you have are intermediate assets. They're not like expenses, right? So for for people like you who come to farming without any, uh, without a lot of net worth, right? Like growing your herd is actually a way to grow your net worth when it's in, when it's breeding livestock. Yeah. 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 It meant for a few lean years. Cause again, you know, when you start with not even bred cattle, but just, you know, right. heifers and a bull, and then you turn the bull out and then you get nine months before you even have calves. And then another two years with grass fed right before they're, um, ready for processing. So that's really the, tr it, it does help build equity, but you have to make sure you're right. Your, uh, business plan, right. So that you can handle those lean years and make the debt service payments sure. before you have income. Sure. All right. So you did that and then, um, and you were working on Paul's farm and then what happened? So you said you started transitioning into the small grains with Paul. Yeah. And the, the, in some ways, the craziest thing was the very first thing, and that was that in that first year where he threw me on a tractor in the middle of the season, I didn't start working, I think, until July. Um, and he had actually just had a barn fire, which is the reason I was unsupervised on the cultivator tractor right out of the gate because he was, <laughs> he was distracted trying to clean all that up and deal with the insurance and this and that. Um, and then... Uh, Actually, in mid-August, uh, Hallie, um, let's see, August 15th, Henry was born, which is our, our oldest son. Mm -hmm. So that was a crazy summer. And then somehow by September, I had convinced Paul to plant 40 acres of hard red winter wheat, which is a bread wheat that he had never grown wheat in his whole farming 40-year farming career. And I talked him into planting 40 acres. And I, you know, I hadn't even been on the farm six months. Right. So for some reason, he said yes to that. Uh-huh. Um, and almost all of that went to the outpost, actually, in Milwaukee through Lonesome Stone Milling. Nice. I mean, the other, <clears throat> the other thing that really enabled all of this is the presence of uh, Lonesome Stone Milling and Gilbert Williams. And, and they, I mean, he really, by starting the, the stone mill in Lone Rock, which was 25 miles from our farm, we had uh, a pipeline so that we didn't have to necessarily build a flour mill right away. We could um, either just sell wheat to Lonesome Stone and they could mill it in for flour and, and sell it into wholesale markets. Or what we ended up doing was getting a value-added producer grant, so, uh, which basically covered the working capital expenses, reimbursed the working capital expenses of paying the toll milling. <clears throat> And various other things like designing labels and uh, the cost of, of bagging material and, and some other things. And, and that allowed us to, to start selling flour and, and building an online store and, and developing a pretty loyal customer base for three years before we, before we bit the bullet and started building the flour mill on the farm. 
Right. And that in that period, so you had 40 acres of wheat. That that doesn't 40 acres sounds like a lot, but in the world of wheat it's not it's like nothing, right? Like so so you did that the first year and you started selling wheat and then it must have been easier to go back to Paul and say, "Hey, maybe we should do more of this." Yeah, and that that was the point where we um you know, I th- think I we had sort of proven the concept to the point where um it made sense to then invest in uh we put up six or seven grain bins and a cleaning facility so we can clean our own grain uh to milling spec um right on the farm and the, the I mean the cleaning facility was cobbled together Rube Goldberg style with a bunch of equipment from the 40s 50s and 60s so we did that as best we could with farmer ingenuity on the cheap, but it was still a, you know, uh, certainly once you add your labor into it, a pretty expensive undertaking. And that was kind of the other, the other piece of this whole, you know, Hallie and I, we showed up and we worked hard and we had some good ideas and we're, we're very lucky in the place that we landed. Um, but in a lot of ways it's, it's, the Pauls and the Gilberts and, and the other folks in the generation ahead of us that, that have really paved the way for what we're doing in Paul's case, what we discovered is it's really echoed what his father did with him. This is a non-family transition, but Paul grew up in Prairie de Sac and his family farm. And actually, if you go back in my family too, we were both just came from families whose farms were right on the edge of town. So they were inevitably swallowed up when mm-hmm. high schools were built and subdivisions were built. And so the, the home farm in Prairie de Sac for Paul was never going to be a farm. It was going to be development land. That was right. clear. Um, I, I think where the school sits right now is it was fields that Paul worked as a kid. Um, it's right in the, t- in the town there, in the city. And so he was the only one of his siblings that wanted to farm actively. So his father had the equity and the track record and the relationship with banks to be able to come down and buy this farm in Ridgeway. And so mm-hmm. Paul was in a million dollars in debt when he was 25 and they built this 300 cow confinement dairy in 1978, which at the time was huge. I mean, it was like front page news. Right. Um, and he still keeps the clippings from that. Now 300 cow dairy is, you know, pretty modest. Right. Um, but he was able to do that because of the, the, the credit worthiness and experience of that older generation. And so, what's really allowed us to put up the bins and and build the cleaning facility and now build the flour mill is the greater track record of this farm that Paul started in 1978 you know mm-hmm. everything that we've done and grown has basically been financed through the farm credit system um everything has been debt financed so we had to prove that incrementally because what we were trying to do was not put up a freestall barn or or uh, a bigger parlor, I mean, or, or do the kinds of things that the credit analysts at, at Compure were used to doing. We were saying, you know, let's build this crazy spelt dehauling line and put up a bunch of grain bins so we can get $1.25 a pound for this grain that no one's ever heard of. I mean, it was just, right, we, it we was actually tried far. to ask, we tried to ask for all of it at once, but it was, you know, they gave us basically the first half, you know, right, right. build the bins, build the thing. Use Lonesome Stone as a toll miller. You know, great. You got that, you know, USDA grant. 
But in some ways, it felt like even that, and I'm sorry if I'm getting a little off the rails, but even that um, USDA grant, when it came to uh, like analyzing our creditworthiness, it was almost like it was, I don't want to say held against us, but you know, when, when we got that, the working capital assistance from the VAPG grant, it was kind of like the VAPG allowed us to springboard to the next level, but it, it didn't feel like that grant was any, like there was no intrinsic, uh, value to it in terms of our credit worthiness. Like it didn't feel like Compure evaluated us any more positively because we had that grant. It felt yeah. like it was more of a complication than a than a windfall. Value-added producer grants are so helpful for people doing unusual value-added things like you, right? Sure. So it's, a, it's an incredibly useful tool. And it's also that grant requires you to spend money up front and then get reimbursed. And I think what, what makes the lenders nervous about it is that thing that I just described, right? Um, so sometimes they'll even, like Compeer will do this, that they will do a line of credit against the grant to help farms do the spending up front and then get reimbursed. What, sure, yeah. Yeah. What I think was different for you is that you're working with Paul who has, you know, a, a, a bigger farm and a balance sheet and a track record of success. And so I think a lot of times the underwriters look at that and say, well, why don't you just borrow the money from us? Right. <laughs> They're like, don't bother with all this other stuff. We'll just make it simpler and we'll lend you the money. There's a little bit of that attitude with um, more established operations that, you know, you as a young farmer on your own, that would, you know, there's, there is no balance sheet and there is no experience. And so they don't act that way. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you got the VAPG, you launched your brand um, and you were milling at Lonesome Stone. Now you have grain cleaning. When did you and Hallie and Paul sit down and talk about um, a ownership transition of the bigger farm. I was, I mean, that was something that every winter we, you know, we we would when we go to winter conferences, we would go to all the farm transition workshops and mm -hmm. and talk it through. And over time, when it came around, we sort of tackled each one of these every single winter. You know, first it was. I mean, first it was adding another crop to the rotation, growing wheat and figuring out how to market that. Right. Um, then it was the cattle and buying the 80 acres. And then it was pretty clear that the next move was for us to have um, a stake in the farm. And by the time we got around to that point, it became pretty clear that it was a pretty elegant solution because of the unique way the farm is set up the all of the real estate and all of the equipment basically all the assets of the farm are in an s corp and paul is the sole shareholder so what we were basically able to do is all, we just have purchased half the shares in the in the farm corporation and the note is uh we we set the share price at what you know we sat down with uh accountants and attorneys and and all of us in a room and Paul said, this is what I feel like is a, is a, what I need as a retirement, basically as a, as a monthly payment or pension. And so then that became the share price and that, that was the cost of, of, of buying in. Mm -hmm. And what that, 
meant <clears throat> is that we're paying, I mean, a, a dramatically discounted price uh, to entry. But part of the whole thing is if we had tried to buy that 50% at appraised value, the debt would have been crippling. I mean, there's just no way you would have written a profitable farm, even with all this value added, uh, profitable farm business plan and cash flow analysis off of that if you had penciled in full value. So what's, again, what's so unique about it is is Paul's not just willingness, but like embracing the idea that it's more important to get a young farmer or young couple started in farming and to have... Uh, continuity in the farm too i mean it'd be one thing for him to retire and and uh you know sell the equipment and and sell the land and let's say you know the equipment was sold out into the community and i don't even know how it would happen but let's say in a idealistic world there was some young farmer who was able to buy that land you know then they're just starting over with no equipment and no track record and no you know um no built-in knowledge of the of the, the variations in fertility and and cropping history and there's so much built-in knowledge that Paul has from working this land for 40 years that um, if someone were to just start over it would take a tremendous amount of time just to get back to where Paul was in the 80s you know and it's, right um, so to be able to just basically continue the farm even though we're not family. Um, you know, we're effectively family at this point. Um, but that was, uh, is, is hugely helpful to us and is really the only reason we're able to do what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is the, is the goal to someday own a hundred percent? Yeah. And the way I don't remember the exact particulars of how it was written in, but the way Paul's estate is constructed actually is if we, the first half is on, I believe, a 20-year note. And if we pay that entirely off, it triggers the second half. Mm. But if he doesn't outlive that first 20 years, then we actually get the second half in his estate, mm. which is crazy. But it was sort of the, the reason... Um, that was just the best way to, to guarantee it and to guarantee Paul the income he needed to retire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I might not have the details 100% on that, but that's, that's in general the way that the structure works. And that gives us a clear path to, um, to 100% ownership, right. sort, of, sort of no matter what happens from here right. on out. Right. So a lot of people um, will say that young farmers don't need to own farmland, that it's an inefficient use of their capital, and they should just be building their um, value-added operation. What do you think about that? I, it's a, I mean, it's a really complicated question, um, which makes me think of everything from... Uh, spent a lot of time this winter, and this is a complete non-sequitur, but thinking about settler colonialism and what this land looked like a few centuries ago and what we as Europeans have come in and done to this landscape. I don't feel, I think in a lot of ways, the real challenge and the thing that keeps, that has been keeping Hallie and I up at night is trying to figure out 
like what is a way that we as farmers can um, do to make sure that we're that we're working with the land and with the ecosystem to improve the ecology and improve the soil and and improve our management so that we're not so um, you know abusive as an agricultural community to the landscape and when you start thinking in those terms ownership you know aside from the dollars and cents of building a balance sheet and i know that's really what you were asking um but it's really hard for me not to sort of see the land management as more the critical piece and what we're doing as farmers to try to improve that and to limit the negative impacts that farmers have on the landscape um that's much more important to me that than whether or not I own the land. I think it's critical that um, for a farm of our uh, scale and for the amount of infrastructure we have at this point, that we have a land base that um, allows for all of that to be sustainable. But even when you look at the way that our uh, farm is built if for some reason our land base were to be cut in half in terms of the land we actually farm in some ways it would just it would just change the the grain supply of the mill to a point like mm -hmm. we would still we would buy more grain from other farmers in the area less per, a lower percentage of the grain for the mill would come from our farm it's not a goal of mine but our farm is unique in that we've built something that's you know, the, the value added component and the flour mill that, that sort of, it's, it's created its own thing that just mm -hmm. happens to be on the farm. And, and that sort of complicates it. I think if I were just a grain farmer, I think there's probably a lot of organic farmers that would say that, you know, there's probably, if you surveyed young grain farmers, I think you'd probably come to some number that says, you know, it's probably good to own, you know, X percent of, of your land base and then probably rent in excess of that just to um, keep your operating costs lower. But at the same time, I mean, it's, I'm, uh, so it's, it's a tremendous question you've asked Tara. I know <laughs> because it also gets question. into, it yeah. also gets into the, all of the land that's, you know, the, the, the big farm transition problem in this country now where, you know, in the, in the interest of fairness, farms are split into, um, uh, you know, the farms aren't split, but the ownership is diluted into children and grandchildren to the point that it's no longer actually a farm. It's just a assemblage of assets. And that has sort of inevitably um, destroyed farms as independent entities. It's just made it land. Mm -hmm. that's rentable and you know that's I think that's more the case in Iowa and Illinois and Indiana than it is in Wisconsin because the dairies have managed to keep livestock on the land which I think is a big you know the driftless and the the geology and the geography and the slopes of it keep the farms smaller but the livestock also helps farms to be more sustainable because they're more self-sufficient that way mm -hmm. um, if you just have grain and you're just raising corn and soybeans you have to be pretty darn big for as input heavy as that is, um, to have any economy of scale. So, uh, 
I think finding ways to this it's one this one thing that this whole transition has helped to illuminate for Hallie and I is that you know we have two kids um if they're interested in farming this is they're you know they're five and three um but in 20 years 30 years if they're interested in farming they'll have that opportunity but one thing that we're definitely committed to is if they're not then our goal as farmers is to do what paul did and find a young person or young couple that is interested in actually farming the land and then that will be the eventual owner of the of the land and of the business it it shouldn't go in our opinion it shouldn't go to non-farming heirs because then it it's pretty much ceases to become a farm and simply becomes an asset and i think that that's to the disservice of the land yeah at the end and, of the day yeah and i i you know i i think about organic farming or regenerative farming and it requires so much investment in improving the soil right um, yeah and why would I undertake that if I don't have clear, when it's not, I don't own the land, right? So I have no clarity over um, whether I'll even be on this land in 10 years, right? It yeah. makes the economics of it look really, really sketchy to the farmer who is faced with that decision, even though they want to farm that way, right? Yeah. So it's, you're right that this like, division among you know it gets to the point where there are 10 different people who own this farm or pieces of the farm it, it yeah it's really hard to transition it's really hard to get somebody on there who's going to make the investment you need to see regenerative or sustainable or organic farming happen on yeah. the land and we're very lucky our our landlords are all people that are committed to our farm you know right. they, they want to see it organic in many cases, they've been renting their land to Paul for 30 years. Right. So much so that their neighboring farms where the fence lines have long ago been torn out and there's no, you can't tell the difference when you walk from our mm -hmm. farm onto theirs because it's just one hilltop that's all farmed together. Right. So we're lucky in that way. I think it's much more difficult for farmers that are, again, in, I don't mean to keep singling out the like flatter, deep prairie soil areas of the Corn Belt, but these areas where land rents tend to be higher mm -hmm. and there tend to be more absentee landlords, not to say absentee landlords, but you know what I mean? That right. um, non-farming landowners, um, the, the, the name of the game there is like year over year cash leases to the highest bidder sure. and land changes hands all the time. And if I was an organic farmer in that landscape and I needed a minimum five year lease to feel comfortable, you know, most landowners would have no interest in even starting that conversation. So then you really have to find those landowners that are committed to working with an organic farmer and are going to see the value in having a single tenant for right. decades, you know. Um, and that's, you know, it's, that's hard. That's really hard to find. And yeah. we're very lucky that we're not in a landscape where that's really common. We've tried here and there for a neighboring farm that might come up. Um, but generally speaking, it goes nowhere when you say, okay, we need a five-year lease and right. we want you to uh, charge us less in the first two years while we're going through our organic transition when we're um, doing all of this work but getting conventional prices. And, you know, they'll, you know, just about laugh you out the door. Right. Unless they're of the same mind. Right. 
Well, I just read something that um, Bill Gates is, I, I thought it was first, but it's not. It's like the 24th largest farmland owner in the country right now. And nobody, it, people speculate about why that, you know, why is old Bill, <laughs> who could invest in anything? Why is he investing in farmland? I, I don't know the answer, but that it's indicative of a situation where the owner of the farmland doesn't even live there anymore, right? They're they're remote, and it could be managed by, like, the wealth management people at, at a bank somewhere, right? It's not even right. the family itself. And I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I don't know. I shouldn't speculate. But I wouldn't be surprised if some of the f tenants probably don't even know that that's who owns the land. Right. There's probably right. entities in between that... Yep that don't won't divulge who the owner you know what i mean yep so i totally know it's uh it's yeah a, it's a i don't i it, yeah that's really come out of the woodwork in the past couple of months there's all these stories about bill gates and how much farmland he owns i didn't i haven't read anything past the headlines so i i won't speak anymore but it's been interesting to see all of the reactions to it yeah yeah well and it just yeah just i don't i think people to your point, they're treating farmland as an asset class, as and that's such a different, it's kind of a jarring thing to talk to a farmer about that, especially people who are doing kind of regenerative practices and things like you guys are doing, because um, it's not about an asset at all to you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's an asset because it has to be functionally, right. and, and because of the way, you know, we live in a we live in a capitalist society that that land is valued the way it is and and farmers have to work within the existing systems that they have it's funny i'm not i in terms of myself individually i'm i'm not a, really an entrepreneur or a capitalist by inclination i've just very quickly realized that if you want to make change the market is, for better or for worse, really the way that those changes are like made and rewarded in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so for us, you know, we profit isn't the end goal. It's sort of a lever or a tool. You know, if you can create a system that's profitable that allows us to be better stewards of the land or allows us to, you know, leverage our, our relationships and skills in the in the restaurant and culinary world to help other farmers get access to markets that help them farm in a more uh, regenerative and uh, um, holistic way, then that's what we're going to do. Um, but you can't just say, well, my farm wants to be, you know, planted into diverse cover crops and seed it all down to prairie because you'll never make your payments. Right. So you have to, you have to find a way and that's where value added has been so helpful for us is it's allowed us to go from, you know, half to two thirds of the farm being in corn and soybeans to more like 25 to 40 percent of the farm being in corn and soybeans. Right. If we had done that without value added, we'd be broke. Right. But because of the value added, it's allowed the wheat and the, the rye and the spelt and the buckwheat and the, all of those other things to be profitable, which then hasn't, you know been a drag on it that's one of the interesting things about i think because of organic farmers you know it's built in that you need a really at least a three-year crop rotation there's a whole can of worms of discussing what's an adequate crop rotation on an organic farm but you really you know corn soybeans at least in the area of the country where we're growing um 
you know, and then at very least some kind of a small grain year with a clover or alfalfa underseeding so that you have um, your nitrogen for the, for the following corn crop. And in the driftless, it's just not long enough to be farming uh, uh, and maintaining soil, not just soil health, but um, soil structure and not having it all run into the creeks. I mean, right. you just can't farm corn and beans on these hillsides, even if you're doing no-till um, uh, and manage to keep soil in place. So we needed to grow these other crops. It just so happens that they're delicious. They're easy crops to mill into flowers that people can use. Um, in some ways, the small grains, there's ones like oats and spelt where you have to dehull and it gets a little bit more complicated and capital intensive, but um, wheats, which are free threshing and you just have to grind up and make a dough and make pancakes or noodles or bread or whatever. Um, it's just, it's it's a really, not a coincidence, but it's, it's uh really lucky for us that that the crops that allow us to farm more regeneratively are also the crops that we can very readily turn into food and and get to the chefs and bakers and people like that that's awesome so you were were milling with lonesome stone and um and gilbert gilbert is retired right so or and he so somewhere along the way, Gilbert must have said to you, yeah, John, it's getting to be time for me to retire. Um, would you take this over? Yeah, it's. I mean, honestly, it was a conversation that happened in fits and starts over three or four years. Mm-hmm. You know, it was. Um, it's. It wasn't at all on our radar when we first started the value-added producer grant. Um, but by the time we got about halfway through it and we were thinking about, well, what's the next step? Um, it became pretty clear that that was, uh, the vehicle. It was just a matter of in what shape and in what order. And, um, I think in some ways, I know that it, it would have been good in some ways to continue the, the mill in Lone Rock, but it was, you know, for us, the, the critical piece was getting the, well, there are a number of, of things about bringing the mill down to our farm, but it consolidates all of the, obviously the logistics of trucking all of this heavy stuff, you know, an extra 25 to 50 miles, depending on if it goes up there and back or up there and then to markets, you know, flour and grains are in the world of value added. They're about as little value add as you can manage (laughs) per pound. Right. Um, it's heavy, it's expensive to ship, it's expensive to truck, and compared to cheese or um, vegetables or anything else, it's it's really low value at the end of the day um, in that world. And so the margins are really tight and the transit really matters. And so having that consolidated where we're already bringing in grain from other farms, we're already cleaning grain, it made a lot of sense to us. Mm-hmm. And then um, what was really the tipping point was us finding someone who uh, wanted to make milling flour, pr- the actual production work of milling flour, their day to day. We hired uh, Rink DeVee, who is a, f- a former vegetable farmer uh, from Mineral Point, who was uh, also had experience doing local foods wholesale aggregation. Um, and when we linked up with him, and he was willing to do that work, that was really 
when we really started, you know, running because mm-hmm. then, then we realized that we could actually pull this off. The, right. the thing that held us back for a while and the tail end of the VAPG is we're running around like crazy already, you know, and two little kids and trying to run the farm and I'm doing all of the, you know, grain buying and cleaning and, um, and Hallie's doing all of the sort of like back the marketing and, and working with uh, customers and getting all the online orders out the door, we would have been kidding ourselves to think we're also going to spend the hours milling, physically milling the flour. And so finding that other person for to sort of fill out the team, and there's certainly going to be a lot more of that to come, um, that, was, that was really when everything kind of snapped into focus, I think for us and for Gil too. Right. Right. So, so you ended up, um, um, purchasing Lonesome Stone Milling and moving all the, or at least some of the equipment to your farm. So you had to build a facility to receive it, bring that equipment and you're buying some new equipment, right? Yeah. That, that's actually, we're in the middle of that moment where you, you know, uh, um, We've jumped. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we unplugged the mills in Lone Rock. Gil has taken them out of the building. We're picking them up tomorrow, actually. Wow. And then we need to have them wired and, and, and have our building inspections and dat cap inspections within a couple, you know, within a week or two so that we can get the flour back flowing and our customers aren't going to be without flour. It's mm-hmm. a really, we're, we're in the middle of it. And nail it's biter. Pretty, it's a, it's a nail biter and it's a critical moment, especially for, we're very lucky that, that we have bakers that are so committed to our products and our grain that we are their entire supply chain, like right. origin bakery and origin bread in Madison. If we don't have flour for a week, they just have to shut the bakery for a week. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, and we're, we're optimistic, confident that that's not going to happen. Um, but we still have to hurt, clear some hurdles. So it's it's a, kind of a scary moment in that way, but it's also really um, – I know when we step back from it, it's it's really gratifying that, that we have, you know, customers that are reliant on us. It just – it adds to the stress in a moment like this. But, right. yeah, so we, we're, we're – one interesting thing is there's a number – there's – if you start researching stone milling technology, there's mills from all, you know, just about every country in Europe and – and a few different manufacturers in the U.S. But what we've settled on is all of our stones are going to, the stones we're using are natural granite stones, and they're all American-made mills. So we have a 30-inch Meadows mill that's coming from Lonesome Stone, and then a 24-inch Meadows mill that we actually acquired from Michael Field's Ag Institute a couple of years ago. They used to have a bakery there in East Troy that used that, and then we're buying two 48-inch New American stone mills, which are are built in Vermont. That's a new company mm. started by a baker who started building stone mills. Um, and those mills have become really popular in the sort of very still small subculture, but the sort of sourdough uh, local regional grains movement um, so that they've been uh, increasingly gaining a foothold in, in building these. They're very beautiful, um, very mm. intuitive, simple stone mills that that are designed to mill uh the stones go at a lower rpm and the stones are physically larger so they do a better job of uh grinding the flour finer and maintaining a low temperature which is the two main things to ensure really good quality 
So we're really excited about those mills, but those are going to be uh, probably a couple months down the road before they're up and running and, and installed. So why do you need more than one? Uh, for, for a number of reasons, really. The, the, the first and foremost is it really increases our throughput because we can be, multiple, we can be milling multiple lots of grain at the same physical time. At Lonesome Stone, the the mill was in a very short, you know, uh, just a typical room. And so the only way to get grain up into the hopper was to fill a bus tub and put it over your shoulder and dump it in this hopper mm -hmm. that probably held 100 pounds of grain. And so the job of the miller was to literally lift every pound of wheat wow. over your shoulder. Um, and you're talking about thousands of pounds of flour a week. And so we built our mill with 16-foot ceilings so we can use uh, basically rigid plastic hopper bottom totes and just have those suspended above the mills and you pull a slide gate and the wheat just, you know, 2,000 pounds a week can flow through the mills without anybody lifting a finger. So we're adding that level of, it's not automation, but it's, I guess it is a certain level of automation so that we can... So the job of the miller is much easier, mm -hmm. but then we can also have, you know, rye flour going on one mill and cornmeal going on another and, you know, maybe bread flour going on the new American stone mills. Uh, whereas when you just have the single mill, you know, you mill rye and then you clean out the mill and then you mill corn. And every time you do that, you have to adjust the stones a little bit. And so the other thing we're doing is each of the mills is going to be sort of specifically calibrated to a particular type of grain, mm. the type of uh, to produce a polenta versus producing, uh, um, you know, a, a bolted or sifted pastry flour is radically different. And if you try to force the same mill to do all of that, you're going to sacrifice quality. So one of the mills is specifically going to be set up for, you know, high extraction, which is like whole wheat bread flours and, um, and, and whole wheat flours where you need a really fine sizing of the bran. Um, and then some of the other mills, which kind of the Meadows mills are designed, they come from like a southern, they're built in North Carolina, and they come from a southern uh, milling tradition with soft white wheats, like if you think biscuits and, and, and then cornmeal too. Um, those mills are actually designed to keep the bran as large as possible so that you can just sift it through fine mesh screens and capture that bran and let, you know, what's pretty close to white flour through. Stone milling is very different than modern roller milling, which is what you see in grocery stores and what people are used to. Um, we can sift flour to remove a certain percentage of the bran and um, to make it more refined, but none of the flours we produce are a completely white, you know, grocery right. store flour. And that's, right. it's interesting. We have to, we find that we have to do a lot of education because it, the performance is different. The hydration is a little bit different, but you know, when it's milled fresh, the flavor is better, the nutrition is much better, um, and uh, so there's a lot of benefits to stone milled flour. It just takes uh, um, a little bit of creativity and open and openness um, when when you try it for the first time because it is going to be a little bit of an adjustment period compared to something out of the grocery store. Right. And I suspect that the bakers had to go through an adjustment like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually um, one of the big incremental steps that we've taken over the past few years is figuring out how to blend lots of grain in large volumes so that we can um, 
make that job for the bakers, the commercial bakers, much easier. Mm. And in the, in the early days of Lonesome Stone, let's say um, there would be a lot of grain that would come off of one farm in Dodgeville, like say Dave Dolan's farm in Dodgeville. Well, they would mill all of that, and then that would supply the bakeries for two months. But then it would switch to oh, somebody um, else Jim Jeffrey's wheat, and then all of a sudden the protein would change by a half a point, and then the falling number was different, and then all of a sudden the bread comes out crazy because because there was all this difference in the supply chain. So what we're doing now is, you know, our bread blend is maybe, um, you know, a certain percentage of our hard red spring wheat and a certain percentage of our hard red winter, but then also spring wheat from two other farms mm -hmm. that we blend to try to make sure that the protein and falling number and the statistics are going to be consistent for, a, you know, hopefully nine to 12 months at a, at a stretch. And then the, it's much easier for the bakers because the flour that they get from the mill is much more consistent. And especially for a larger bakery um, like a Madison sourdough, that consistency is critical because there's so many different people that run different shifts and, 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 are, and are handling the dough and doing the mixing. And um, if that's changing, the, big, the bigger your staff, the harder it is to use um, flour that's changing all the time. Right. And so we've tried to basically operate like a small mill and everything is, you know, sourced from individual farms and you can see right on the label where it's coming from, but to try to approach the consistency of a King Arthur or something like that, you know, we're, we're never going to be quite there. And I think that's probably a good thing, but we have to, tr to try to take that next step up and look at institutional buyers and, um, larger bakeries. They're going to demand that level of consistency and so finding ways to deliver on that is, has been a challenge that we've been working hard to, to overcome. So your products, your grain, what grains do you offer at Metalark? Yeah, it's a pretty wide range at this point. We, we grow hard red winter and hard red spring and uh, soft white winter wheat. And between those three, that makes basically bread flour, all-purpose flour, and pastry flour. Okay. Um, that's the wheats. Yeah. But then we also do rye and spelt, and we do raw rolled oats and uh, buckwheat. And then we do we grow a number of varieties of uh, some food grade hybrids, but uh, we have a number of unique open pollinated corn varieties. Mm. So we have like a yellow, hard yellow flint corn, which is a really good polenta corn, but then also a red flint, and we grow bloody butcher corn and and a open pollinated white dent that we s grind for grits, but also use, you know, there's local tortilla companies that use those too. So um, it's a, it's a pretty wide range. And increasingly we've been trying to grow dry edible beans, mm. which are a real agronomic challenge in the driftless, but customers absolutely fawn over. I mean, it's, people get so excited about good beans because right. usually when you buy beans, even if you're buying from a grocery store in a bulk bin where they turn over pretty frequently, they can often be two and three years old and take forever to cook or sometimes some of them never cook. And mm -hmm. and if you have – it's they're not fresh beans in the sense that they're fresh shelling beans from a farmer's market in the summertime. But even just having beans that have been harvested within three months, like it's amazing how the positive feedback we get on flavor and texture and they cook more quickly and – um, uh, it's just something the customers really, really love. And we're trying to figure out ways to scale it up so far. We've only managed to be able to do a few acres here and there, hmm. uh, without making it too risky because the seed is expensive. And if you lose your crop, it can be right. Uh, rough. Yeah. Um, 
So it's a, it's a wide variety. The goal over time is to make it so that we're not growing every single one of these grains on the farm. Right. Uh, probably try to simplify our growing a little bit so that we're not doing so much uh, bin juggling and combine cleanouts during harvest time and working more with dedicated farmers that say, okay, you're growing rye for us and, and you're growing spelt and you're going to grow soft white winter. And, and then the farmers that we have relationships with get really good at growing those particular grains for the mill. Right, right. Such an incredible story. I, I'm, every time I talk to you, I learn more. And, um, and yeah, there are very few people I know who would have had the fortitude to go through all of the steps that you have gone through over the last six and seven years. Um, it's amazing. So I want to have you back sometime because I want to talk to you specifically about your um, how you sell, right? And yeah. you know how you you have you pivoted during COVID and how you sell online because now that's a much bigger portion of your business um, than it was going into COVID. Um, and and it's like a whole nother interview, I think. So um, if you're up for that, I think I'd love to do that. Yeah, certainly. And that I mean. Uh, that should probably be an interview with Hallie or, or both of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that would be uh, great because that's really her arena and where she's, uh, done an amazing job. We yeah. tried to both be on here, but between the earbuds and the, it was complicated to get us both on the horn for this one, but, yeah. um, no, that would be great. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, because I think it, you know, it would have ended up being too long as one podcast anyway. And I know our listeners will be interested in that part of your story as well. So, uh, so yeah, we're going to have you back to talk about that. So thank you so much for doing this in the middle of such a critical time, moving from one plant to another. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a great conversation and I think it's been good for good for my uh soul to like zoom out for a moment in the midst of this craziness and yeah and, uh, have a more reflective conversation because it's uh it's inspiring so. yeah yeah well you're going to be inspiring to a lot of our listeners too i promise you that so um congratulations on all you've accomplished and we'll talk again soon about your all of the go-to-market stuff you do yeah thanks thanks so much for having me tara it was great Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.